You know, I was just thinking that uh, our country, if not the world, is just seeking for rest, looking for opportunity to rest. And really, there is no greater rest than that which comes in Christ Jesus. And we're focusing on that in the 23rd Psalm. So let's take our Bibles together. We're in the 23rd Psalm. We're focusing on verse 5, but you can't really focus on verse 5 without reading the context leading into it. So let's read the text from your scripture. It'll be on the screens as well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through, or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs, oh, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And then next week, we'll talk about the goodness and mercy of God that follows us. You know, there's really great depth to the 23rd Psalm, and I think there's such depth to it because David is looking back over some years of his life and viewing snapshots. And as he's viewing snapshots in his life with, with the Lord, he's reckon, reckoning that he is like a shepherd to him and that he is just reflecting on his care and his provision and his goodness. If you're a Bible student and one who likes to study the Scripture intently, and you have studied the 23rd Psalm, you probably note that many people say that verse 5 is a transition verse, that things shift a little bit, and that David is no longer reflecting on the Lord as his good shepherd, but he's reflecting on him as his good host. And I would concur with that, but I don't want to walk away from this vein that we've been uh, considering as we've been digging into the truths of the 23rd Psalm, I think David as well is continuing to express the Lord as a good shepherd. So rather than coming down on one of the two, is he a host or is he a shepherd, I want to merge the two of those together and I want to reflect on the truth of verse 5 with those two perspectives in mind. As if David is looking back from the totality of his life, looking back and just overviewing the snapshots that he has visioned in his mind is just reflecting on the goodness of God. Now, no matter which way we approach it, I think there's a singular truth that this is coming down to, and it's this, that God is sovereign and provides our protection, provision, and care with abundance. So we'll come at it in a couple of different angles, but this is going to be our conclusion. And when we walk out of here today... I hope that we have a better understanding of the sovereignty of God and his authority in that sovereign position to provide for us, protect us, and to care for us, and that we will understand the abundance in which he does it. But let's ask the Lord to give us some guidance by his scripture and by his spirit. Father, I just come before you now and ask that you would direct our thoughts and our, my words and our ability to receive them with great depth and an understanding that moves us to living out the practical word that is expressed today. I pray that in the end it brings glory to Jesus. It causes us to be more exalting of him and more encouraged by him and more surrendered to him who is our good shepherd and the great host. We pray these things in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, let's first just continue to think about this psalm relative to David's understanding as a shepherd. You know, David has been a shepherd long before he was a king. Uh, that was God's training ground for him to be the king of Israel, that he would be the ruler over some sheep. And he did that for a number of years. So I can't help but think that the continuation of the 23rd Psalm is with that perspective in mind. If you were here last week, you recognize that there is a cyclic movement to shepherds and how they are grazing their sheep, providing for them in and around Israel, particularly in the Judean region or in the Jordan Valley, and then moving back uh, through the wilderness onto the hillside around Bethlehem and Jerusalem and then north up to the Dead Sea uh, excuse me the uh, Sea of Galilee Lake Tiberias and then on into the Golan Heights and it's in this circuit that they would make their move depending on the seasons by which they were providing the food for their sheep and I think that those cycles of movement were actually passed down from generation to generation David comes from a long line of shepherds in fact all the patriarchs of Israel were first shepherds before they were leaders of the tribes or of the nations. And so David is understanding this, and the way David would approach that is he lives, he's from the, the area of Bethlehem, which is about five miles away from Jerusalem, and he's, he's tending his sheep in and around Bethlehem. And as the seasons are shifting, so is he shifting the movement of the sheep. He would cut through the paths of the Jordan desert the wilderness the Negev and he would graze them in and around the Jordan Valley there in that real tropical kind of climate but as the spring rains would cease and summer heat would increase he would move them to other pastures to the north and end up in and around the plateaus and it makes sense that in the heat of the summer you would end up in the higher plateaus in fact even in the United States it said that some of the plateaus that we have are the best grazing places for livestock, including sheep. We call them the mesas in the U.S. Mesa is the Spanish word for table. And we often think of mesa or mesas in the U.S. from being from Washington down on the west coast in California and then over towards the, the middle section of the state into the Dakotas in the southwest down to Texas and Oklahoma and all that region and in those higher elevations are the mesas they are what we would describe in the English word tablelands for those grazing animals and it was that way in Israel as well many times the tableland of Israel are those upper areas of the Golan Heights uh, just south of Lebanon and Syria in the northern mountainous regions there that was a great place to graze your animals in the proper season. But because that area is remote, it would mean also it was an area that could be some pretty dangerous ground. You could have vegetation that was not necessarily healthy for sheep. In fact, it could be very poisonous to sheep. And you could have wild animals that were in the area as well. So the shepherd had to really keep his eye after the sheep to make sure that they were not grazing on things that were not good for them. You know, certain plants for sheep could actually make them sick even unto death. So the shepherd would have to go and peruse the field and uproot those things that would be dangerous to the sheep and get rid of them, cast them out. 
And in a similar measure, the Lord is like that for us. He's a good shepherd to us, and he knows what is healthy for us to graze in life and what is not healthy for us. And by his care and provision for us, he makes it so that we will not participate or partake in that which is deadly to us in spirit or emotionally or otherwise. It's as if the Lord is just uprooting that around us or he's giving us warning by his Holy Spirit to stay clear of those areas, giving us way of escape when a temptation comes that we don't have to fall into the sin. And he is there to protect us and guide us. We're grateful that we have a shepherd like that. But the, the shepherd in Israel would also be on the lookout for deadly animals, those that were wild and would come against the sheep, particularly the dogs, the coyotes, the wolves, the lions, the bears. In fact, David himself would tell stories about himself as a shepherd who would at times have to rescue the sheep from the lion and the bear. I mentioned last week that the shepherd has a staff and he has a rod in his hand and that rod is like his billy club and he would fend off the predators from his sheep and there were times that he would have to go and rescue a lamb or rescue a sheep from one of those animals and he would use that rod to do that and I can envision that if he knew such a predator was in the midst that was causing him trouble or she, I can imagine him going and hunting them down to get rid of them so that the sheep would not be vulnerable to them. And that's a big deal for us because we have to reckon that the sheep are not given a defensive measure by God. And if you think about it, a dog, a dog can bark. What does a sheep do? A dog can bite. What does a sheep do? A sheep doesn't have defensive mechanism. The, the defense for the sheep is the shepherd. And God has intended it to be that way. That the sheep would always be dependent upon the shepherd for his protection, for his guidance, for the nurture, for the care, the provision. All those things, the sheep have to have a shepherd to provide them. And if not, they're left in a very vulnerable place. So the shepherd is alert to those things. He's alert to the grazing lands. He's alert to the beasts that might be on the, the rim above them, looking down to see what scheme they might bring against the sheep. The sheep have that, that way of panicking when a beast comes to the field. And it's intended to be that by the beast. They come in and they scatter the sheep with the hopes that in scattering them, the weaker ones or the younger ones will be on the peripheral and then they are easy prey. The Lord knows that and he knows our need for defense and so he is our good shepherd. What defense do we have against the devil and all of his wiles? What do we have against the power of the enemy and all of his spiritual evil horde? What power do we have? I tell you, the power that we have is in the shepherd that is in life with us who we stand by purposefully and who's looking after us he knows the schemes and the poise and the methods of the enemy and he is with us by our side it's essential that you and i stay in that safe place with our shepherd look what psalm 46 says god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble Last week we talked about being in the valley of the shadow of death and that we would not have to fear evil. You know why? Because the shepherd is with us. And that's what the Psalm 46 is saying, that God is our refuge and he is our strength. And we know that to be the case because he is present. 
He is a present help. So I don't know the struggles that you're going through. I don't know the difficulties that you have. I don't know the sicknesses that you're experiencing. I don't know the, the weight or the burdenness or the, the uh, fractural relationships that you have. I don't know the disease that you've been diagnosed with. I don't know the grieving that you have. But I do know this, that if you're in Christ, Christ is with you. That he's a present help. He's not distant and removed saying, work it out the best you can. If you need me, give me a call. No, God is with you. His presence is with you. And in that, he is our refuge and our strength. And it's a very appropriate verse for us, verses 2 and 3, since we've had some major earthquakes in the United States. Therefore, we will not feel, uh, fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. By the way, that's a... That's a word that's used to give instruction to the people singing the song. It would be take a moment and think about that. Let there be a little interlude, if you will. Let the pause, let the music just kind of ring out with no more words. Let that truth settle in. I like the way that sounds for us today, just to let that truth settle in. The Lord is your strength. He is your refuge. He is your present help. Therefore, though your whole world may be quaking, God is with you, and he will provide for you. The shepherd wants us to know that very truth, that he is a present help. So I implore us to draw near to the Lord, graze on his word, rest in his presence, listen to his voice, be faithful to him, as you walk side by side with him and him with you. For the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. What a great promise that is. If you're one to circle in your Bible, you might just circle that verse, make a notation by it. Maybe cut that one out of the handout, stick it on your refrigerator, because what a great promise that is. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, we really do lack time to continue in that direction, but I think it's a good direction to be in. David just looking back on the totality of his life as a shepherd and applying some of those things that he has discovered about God as his great shepherd. If we had time, I'd talk about being anointed with oil. David is seeing God, the good shepherd, the Lord himself, anointing his head with oil like what David would have anointed his own sheep with oil. As if there was a wound that a sheep had, it was an anointing of oil that would bring a measure of protection and care and provision and healing to that little sheep. Or maybe it's that the flies that are constant in the land on animals, maybe it's that those flies that get all around the the nasal area of the sheep with the intention of laying eggs there and that egg hatching into larva and that larva infecting the sheep and can cause death to them. It's the anointing that the shepherd provides to protect that sheep or to take that oil and rub it over its entire wool so that the flies and the insects would no longer harm it. Maybe it's that that David had in mind when he recognizes the hands of the Lord upon him to anoint him, to protect him, and make provision for him. Or maybe it's David thinking about himself as a good shepherd who provides water, and he pours out water from a hand-dug well, and he pours water in excess for the sheep. 
so that they have all that they need for refreshment. Maybe it's in that that David is looking at the life history that he's found with the Lord and knows that he just keeps pouring in abundance the refreshment by his spirit into his life. That's a good place for us to be in thinking of it in that way. But I'd like to come at it at a different angle for a moment and just think about the goodness of God and the grace that God has provided to David and all the provision of mercy and faith and grace that David has experienced. And maybe in this moment, David is transitioning a little bit in verse 5. In this verse, he talks about his head being anointed with oil and his cup running over. You know, long before David was king, he was a shepherd. In fact, Samuel the prophet was instructed by God to go to David even when he was a boy. Some say pre-adolescent and anoint him as king. He didn't take the throne of the kingdom until he was 30 years old. And in that time in between, God was moving in David's heart as a young shepherd boy. He was moving in his heart to develop his heart to be after God. In fact, God would say a summary of David like what I hope that he would say after you and me that he or she has a heart after me, that our heart would be given to the things of God. Long before he was king, he was living in the fields. And that was not necessarily a position that was looked up to. In fact, it was looked down upon by most people. His life was lived, as some would say, as a waste as a shepherd. It was the tradition of the youngest of the family's sons to be in the fields living day and night with the sheep. Now, we have a hard time understanding what life like that would be like. In fact, as Westerners, we often read God's Word with our own experience in mind. And that's a really risky thing to do because I can tell you the westernized culture is not the same culture of the Bible. So we have to be very guarded in doing that and try our best not to do that, to understand the reading of the text in its culture and in its context and with its own language without all of our filters and baggage that we might read into it. So the best way for us to do that with David is to look at the lives of people who live like David lived. Now, although their number is fewer, the Bedouin are actually pretty close to the life that David would live. Uh, more Bedouin today are actually establishing roots in Israel where they're building structures. But not too many years ago, the majority of them were very nomadic, tribal people living together in groups of families and just moving with their sheep, moving around. In fact, it's causing quite an uproar in Israel that in many places of the Negev, the Bedouin are actually building properties, building homes, even without permission to do so. So it's sort of a, sort of a mixture of uh, animosity that's being built, but as well, a preserved life of people that are nomadic. Their lives help us to discover a little bit about David's life. Now, I'm a fan of a gentleman by the name of Ray Vanderlaan. He's an author, a teacher. Uh, he's a, a great, insightful individual to the cultures of the ancient world in Israel. And Vanderlaan says that uh, the Bedouin, in their nomadic way, would be like that which David lived. He's just living out of tents and moving with the sheep. And we can get a little perspective of him coming and going in lands and having the hospitality of Bedouin people 
in that culture. He says, in Bedouin tradition, guests are treated with great honor. In fact, visitors, even strangers, are provided for with the best the Bedouin can offer. They would fight to their death to defend the guest so that they would not have any harm. The amazing hospitality of Bedouin was probably common behavior in the ancient Israelite world, he says. When David wrote, the Lord prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies, my cup runs over, he probably drew from the imagery of his everyday life. So by doing so, he gave a beautiful picture of God's love. Even when enemies were surrounding us, God's protection and provision remains constant. So we get a little insight there. David knew the guidance and the protection of the Lord as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he knew the comfort of drawing near to the Savior during those times, who provided for him in generous ways. He not only viewed the sovereign authority of the Lord, but he also viewed the grace and the mercy of God as a host. Now that's important for us. What I think the 23rd Psalm is helping us to do is to see God in both of those. When I'm running down the interstate in my truck and I see a police car, maybe he's in an obscure place, but I finally have spotted him long before probably, or long after he has spotted me. I don't know about you, when I'm in that situation and I see a police car, I have immediate responses, both in my stomach and in my heart, in my brain and in my foot. It's like everything happens very quickly. And even if I'm driving safely under the speed limit, which you would expect me to do, or if by chance I have been over the speed limit, the response is always the same. Oh, gosh! And by the time I say, oh, gosh, a lot of movement has happened, and I have either brought my speed down or recognize my speed was never too high and bring it back up to where it should be. My response comes from two absolute truths. Number one, the person that I've seen in that car represents authority. I recognize that authority and that causes a response. The second thing is, I am probably a transgressor. <laughs> and the combination of that stirs in me an immediate response. Anybody else go through that? Okay, there are cops who are members of our church. I know them personally, and they know me. And I actually know them to be very gracious individuals. I know them to be kind and loving towards me. In fact, when I see them out in the community, I go to them. I want to converse with them. I want to draw near to them, and they are gracious to me, as I do so and we exchange in conversation we have a, a great time together and then we move on through life and the reason why I say that is my friends who I know who are cops have not lost their authority it stays the same the way I view them though changes I view them as authority and I view them as men of grace I view them in the sovereign authority that the state of Alabama has given them or the municipality or whatever, but I also view them in the love and the mercy that they have demonstrated to me. And because of that, I move towards them. 
All right, now, if you see God only in his sovereignty and only in his authority, and you view yourself as a transgressor, then the, oh gosh, moment is going to happen, and you're going to pull back, and you're going to stay away. But if you learn him in his sovereignty and in his authority, and you know him in his love and mercy and grace, those things can move you towards him. And you can know the love and the care and the provision and the protection that he wants to give you. I think the 23rd Psalm, verse 5, is helping us to discover that. To know that not only is God sovereign and authoritative, but he's a gracious host who says, come to the table. Come to my table and let me provide for you. Come, let me anoint you. Let me honor you. Come to the table and let me give you overflow. I believe that's what David is provoking us to believe and to know and to live with that experience. You know, David comes down to this, that he became a shepherd to God's people because God chose him to be a shepherd. Prior to that, he was a lowly shepherd, the lowest of the family, the one hated by his elder brother, made fun of by his elder brother, but chosen by God and called into a relationship with God and transformed by God so that he became the king of the whole nation. God was inviting him to that place and God is inviting us to a place as well. And in the end, David understood that he was not a self-made man, but he was a grace-filled man. And when you and I come to know God and all that he wants to be known by us, we will come to that conclusion as well. That we are not self-made people, but we are grace-filled people because God has invited us to his table and provides for us in abundance. You may have enemies who may seem to have the last word against you, but they don't. In the end, God will exercise justice perfectly. Everything done in darkness is said to be brought to light, and every time you have responded in love to someone who has sinned against you, God will reward you for that, and he will bring vengeance, if required, to you in fact, in Romans 12, he says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can I just remind you and me that we can respond to our enemies with love because we are confident that God will execute perfect justice one day in the future, that part of that justice will come against sinners who have rejected God's grace, and maybe some of those same sinners have belittled, belittled you, lied about you, stole from you, took advantage of you, maybe has brought torment to you. Here, here's what I want you to know. At the table of God that you have been invited to, God will bring justice he will bring justice such that your enemies will see God's relationship with you. God's relationship that he has provided for you a table and said, come, sit at my table. Here, let me provide for you. It's before you. Let me anoint you. That is, let me elevate you and honor you and let me give you in abundance for the rest of eternity. And the enemies are looking on. Those who are rejectors of God and those who are rejectors of you will just be looking on 
I believe that part of hell is seeing the beauty and the glory that could have been for those who rejected the Lord Jesus, but they chose to reject him. And there for those who are accepted at his table are those who have been made righteous. They will be seen there. So you and I can love people who are enemies against us and we can feed them and we can give them refreshment and we can do so knowing that God in the end is going to bring justice and who knows maybe our loving on people might even make it where they understand the love of God and will be transformed by him like we have been and they too will be at the table with us and God will forever be glorified in that so the Lord invites us to come to the table one of the greater expressions of the table in the scripture is it is an illustration of salvation when God is inviting us to a table he's inviting us to be saved in fact the 14th chapter of Luke is probably the one of most popular in all of the text that Luke has written for us and in this text he gives us a parable of the great banquet if you remember this a master has decided he wants to have a great banquet and he sends out all the invitations but the invitations are sent to people who are indifferent not just to the invitation they're indifferent to the one who's giving the party and they come up with all kinds of excuses why they're not going to be there it's just apathy it's indifference so the owner of the house sends his servants and he says to them as he commissions them go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor the crippled the blind and the lame and the servant says sir what you have commanded has been done and still there is room and the master said to the servant go into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled what God is saying is he is inviting people to the table he's inviting people to the table who recognize they're in need of an invitation of mercy and grace those who are spiritually blind and lame and who are in need of God's touch he's inviting them and he's saying come to my table and they come and that's you and me to the table of the Lord that has been established by him friends we have been separated from God and his holiness by our own sin yet in his mercy and grace he prepares the means by which we can dine at his table giving us clothing of righteousness so that we might have the right attire on for the banquet that he has set before us so he says come in fact the last book in the Bible is an imploring of God to say come come to my table of salvation he says the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price you know what he's saying to us come to the table come to my table of salvation let me throw a little kink in this for a moment there's some verbiage that gets used when in encouraging people to come to Christ and the verbiage is a little different from the way the Bible communicates it I know the intention is right and the motive is pure but people say something like this oh you just need to invite Christ into your heart now, I know what they're attempting to do is say invite him into your life that you might be surrendered to him and live for him and I get that but what David wants us to understand and much of the dialogue of coming to the table is not you inviting God into your heart but it's God inviting you to himself and saying, come to me, come to me. And that puts the right perspective in glory that ought to be. 
that we are distant from God. We're not inviting God to come to us in our distance into our heart. We are hearing God say, come to my table. I have set it and laid it before you. Come to my table. There is unleavened bread that represents my body that is broken for you. There is a cup that represents the new covenant, my blood shed for you. Come to my table and you will dine with me. What an amazing picture that is of coming to the Lord's table and finding the plenty there. So David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Everything made right and just and true. And you anoint my head with oil. In other words, in the ancient world, to be anointed is to have a fragrant oil placed over your head by the host and I let everybody in the house know that you were an honored guest. And my cup runs over, David says. Again, in the ancient world, a cup, a glass would be provided to the guest. The table prepared, the cup is placed, the best wine began to be poured. And I know it sounds a little off to us but the wine would be poured in the ancient world to the point that it was literally overflowing on the table and it gave a summary to the person sitting there when you're in my house you will have more than you need I love you and I'll give it to you in abundance now David who understands God is a great shepherd and God is a great host recognizes that he's been called to the table of the Lord. And at that table, he finds a wondrous meal that has been prepared for him. It's a meal of salvation. And he has been invited there and he's anointed in a position of honor and he has been provided for in abundance. And what a beautiful picture of heaven that is. As we think of that glorious image, we can't help but think about the meal that is being prepared even now for all the saints of God of all time. John, who in the first century had a vision of that day in the future when the table has been set and all the saints come to the Lord's table and eat. And he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John begins to describe the anthem of hallelujahs and the anthem of praise and exaltation that comes from the heavenly host he says it's like a mighty river mighty waters that are just flowing you've probably been there before when there's just a roar of mighty waters or he says it sounded like the peals of thunder just thundering through the sky this great proclamation of the lamb who has prepared the table for his saints and this is what he heard hallelujah for the lord our god almighty the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted for her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints what a meal that will be that's where this whole thing is moved to. David says, the Lord's prepared a table and it's inviting you to come 
the Spirit and the bride, the church, say come. You come and place yourself at the Lord's table and you partake in faith of his body that was broken for you and his blood that was shed for you. And in faith, he credits you with righteousness. He forgives your sins, your transgressions, and he credits you with his righteousness. And he says, he anoints us with oil. The Holy Spirit is often spoken of as this great anointing of God. He anoints us with the Spirit. He anoints us with honor. And he provides for us a cup that runs over. No wonder the last verse is going to be, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, this moment, maybe you're speaking to some who have yet to surrender themselves and salvation to you. Maybe they've been trying to work their way to grace, work their way to righteousness, and they just find themselves desperately short. And today they reckon that they are being invited to your table where you are preparing it and offering it to them with your own body and your own blood. I pray, Lord, that they would surrender themselves to you and receive you in the sacrifice that you have extended for justice on their behalf.